Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today, Joel and I start talking about sophistic theology. How might a sophist look at God? We begin a discussion of Plato's Euthyphro and compare some of Euthyphro's ideas about the gods to how Christians view God. Specifically, what do we think about the interrelationship between the divine nature, power, and goodness? How might we Christians be setting ourselves up to be undermined by the famous Euthyphro dilemma? And how might we be embracing a view about God that aligns with a worldview that is in direct conflict with Christianity? Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Check out tacticalfaith.com for other podcasts, blogs, information about how Tactical Faith seeks to bring the life of the mind to to local churches, and for opportunities to contact us, get involved with us, and support us. Feel free to rate us, comment, or let us know what you think of the podcast, or if you'd like uh, us to cover anything, you can email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com. That's uh, an underscore where the O or the A would be in wondering. Or follow us on Twitter at Wondering Wisdom. Again, an underscore where the O or the A would be in wondering. Sorry in advance if we offend you. Enjoy. The last couple episodes, we've been talking about uh, the sophists, you know, Plato's uh, mortal enemies, uh, you could almost say. And, um, you know, we've talked about what, what the sophist view of, or, you know, like kind of what the what sophists are generally. We've talked about their view of humanity. And in ancient Greek, they, there's more to the understanding of the cosmos, of the, of the universe, than just humanity and, and just a general view of the world. Uh, there's also the gods. And so the sophists have their thoughts about the gods. And uh, today we're going to start moving in that direction, talking about the sophistic view of, of God um, and how that relates to the Christian view of God and maybe to the way that we tend to see God or tend to treat God. Um, and, and we're going to look at the Euthyphro, um, which might be Travis's favorite Platonic dialogue, maybe. Um, at least it's the one he talks about the most. And um, we're going to see how that might help us understand the Christian God, the triune God, in a in uh, a better way. All right. So, so to correct the record, the symposium is probably my favorite Platonic dialogue. I do like the Euthyphro. And the, re- the reason why I like the Euthyphro is um, the same reason I like talking about almost all of Platonic dialogues. Um, it's because I'm the only one that understands them correctly. So, uh, and it's fun being that kind of person. No, uh, but I do really feel like, like there's been a lot of misunderstanding of what's going on in the youth fro. Um, just like, I feel like, uh, there's, there's a lot of misunderstanding of a lot of the, some of the best writings, including the Bible. And the problem is the same sort of problem. And we, we talked about, uh, we started off by talking about how to read the Bible like Plato, which sounds like a, a strange things to say, strange thing to say. But the issue is sort of like learning how to read Plato affected the way I read the Bible. And I think in a positive way, that's one of the things that, that comes up in the Euthyphro is, is learning how to read it a little bit better instead of looking at Socrates as having the right answer or simply boiling the Euthyphro down to uh the propositional claims that are made by the ver- by the two thinkers, the two the two uh, dialogue partners, to actually pass through the Euthyphro to to see what Euthyphro sees about about the gods, about his own situation with his father, 
and uh, and also to see how Socrates speaks and and going through the whole the all the acts of it instead of trying to boil it down to a set of propositions and then maybe some sort of practical application like we're taught to do when we preach to actually pass through the action of the play because these dialogues are sort of like plays uh, is is really the best way to to understand what's going on. So let me do a quick kind of run through of what the Euthyphro is about. So the Euthyphro is taking place uh, shortly before Socrates is killed by Athens, before he's condemned to death. Socrates and Euthyphro are going to what is sort of like, uh, it'd be sort of the equivalent of a grand jury, where they're trying to see if if what the, if the case that's being made against them is worth going to trial. Now, Euthyphro is going to indict his father, um, and they're going before the, the, uh, the grand archon. And this guy is, um, th- this, this p- part of the justice system has to do with issues of, um, issues that are related to, to piety. Uh, miasma is the word, and you might be familiar with that word, uh, particularly if you know, Joel, um, you should be familiar with that word, but, uh, that, that's a joke. Miasma in English means something like a stinky gas. But miasma in Greek Greek has to do with like a corruption that comes from sort of sinning against the gods, you might say, um, or sinning in in an act of impiety. And one of the things that caused a miasma was murder. And so Euthyphro is taking his father, is trying to indict his father for murder. And so he's going to the grand archon court, sort of grand jury to try to get this set out. And Socrates is there as well. Uh, Euthyphro is taking his, uh, indicting his father, trying to indict his father, because his father, uh, uh, he had he had two servants, one that was a little bit lower than the other one, and the one that was a little bit higher got drunk and beat up, and ended, I think ended up killing the younger one. I think he ended up killing the younger one, and so the father got mad. Euthyphro's father got mad, tied the guy up, and threw him in a ditch for all practical purposes. And the, and and he sent for a priest to understand, to try to figure out what he's supposed to do about this this servant. And uh, the servant died from exposure or, you know, I don't know, he fell in a pile of fire ants and got eaten or whatever. Uh, (laughs) This guy died. The the father didn't kill the guy directly, but what he did to the guy ended up causing him to die. So Euthyphro is trying to get him taken, trying to accuse his own father. Socrates meets Euthyphro and Euthyphro is known for being sort of a, uh, you might call him a zealous religious thinker. They refer to him as a seer, but he, he seems to really take Athenian religion very seriously in a way that maybe most Athenians and most Greeks did not. In fact, a lot of people see, a lot of scholars see Euthyphro as being, this might be getting too much in the weeds, but this is sort of important. They see Euthyphro as unusual in terms of religion, that most, most Athenians wouldn't have been like Euthyphro. So in a way, Euthyphro is as different from the Athenians as Socrates is. I don't think that's really the case. I think Euthyphro simply is consistent with the thinking. And Euthyphro represents the thinking of the average person in Athens. Not in terms of they held all the beliefs that he held, but he's in fact, they were inconsistent while he was consistent. You can kind of look at it that way. So they were sophists in relation to human nature. But they didn't, maybe, you know, and maybe they sort of believed in the gods and the gods that they heard these stories of, these myths of, maybe they weren't as obsessed as we tend to think they might have been. Maybe they didn't necessarily believe all the stories in some meaningful way. They're sort of myths that they used. But nevertheless, those myths reflected the views of themselves and sort of the metaphysics that underlie, uh, that lies beneath their understanding of themselves. 
let me see if we can maybe offer a uh, 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 another connection. Um, what what Travis is saying is the average Athenian, um, you know, that you pulled off the street. Uh, when asked, they'd say, "Yeah, I I, I believe in the gods," um, but it didn't really make any impact in their life like they they said that they might they might say they believed in the gods that they they might do some things like you know offer a sacrifice every now and then to just cover their bottoms but um on the whole they they didn't take it that seriously but then you have euthyphro who's who who's really into this i mean he he's he's not just someone who uh who says that he believes in the gods but he he takes it very seriously and he kind of thinks everyone else should do that too yeah, the, the Athenians weren't a bunch of crazy. I mean, they're, they're a lot. They're a lot like like nowadays, right? There's a lot of, for example, Christians who you know they believe the Bible, but you know, you live like everyone else, right? And so that that's that's sort of how they. So we shouldn't see uh, Euthyphro as representative of the average Athenian. He wasn't that by any means. He's representative of the average Athenian's outlook, made consistent thought through, consistent, and someone following it zealously. And so Socrates looks at him, he, he comes upon him, and you, he finds out Euthyphro is indicting his own, he's trying to, to take his own father to court for murder. And Socrates' response is like, whoa. Um, now, now Euthyphro seems to like Socrates, at least until he talks to them for a little while, because Socrates annoys everybody, <laughs> and Euthyphro annoys everybody. And so, you know, they kind of get along. They seem like they're getting along, but Socrates says, you're taking your father to court. You must really understand piety because that seems horribly impious for you to accuse your own father. Um, now, that might not work with our language. It may seem like disloyal or something, but disloyalty is kind of underneath that the rubric of piety, at least in the way we might think about this. For you to attack your own father seems dishonorable and irreligious. Um, and Euthyphro's like, so Socrates says, basically, let me, let me, uh, let me find the quote. He goes, um, uh, by Zeus, Euthyphro, you think that your knowledge of the divine and of piety and impiety is so accurate that when those things happened, as you say, you have no fear of acting impiously and bringing your father to trial. Um, and Euthyphro's response is, uh, is also is equally fantastic. I should be of no use, Socrates, and Euthyphro would not be superior to the majority of men if I did not have accurate knowledge of all such things. So the whole idea is that Socrates is like, you must really understand piety. If you're going to take your father to court, you must know really, really well about piety. And so, and Euthyphro is like, well, yeah, I wouldn't be better than most men like I am. If I didn't know everything, there is no bother. <laughs> and so Socrates said, now remember Socrates being one of the things he's accused of and eventually killed for is impiety. Right. And so, he says, okay, well, I'm being accused of impiety. That's one of the things and corrupting the youth. So Euthyphro, teach me about what piety is. And then I can go to court and I won't be, uh, I can, I can win. I can say, Hey, look, now I found out what piety really is. And now I can do it better. Or he can test and say, I've been pious. Euthyphro showed me what piety is and what I've been doing matches it because Euthyphro is so, so much better than everyone else. <laughs> um, and so this is a classic Socrates, the way Socrates begins a, a conversation, right? He sort of, he sounds like he's flattering the person and asks them to teach him. And so Euthyphro says, all right, I'll teach you. Piety is doing what I'm doing right now, <laughs> which is, 
again, that sounds ridiculous and stupid, but um, remember, you're supposed you need to embody these these thinkers and recognize that they're saying they're saying out loud the things that you think, but won't allow yourself to recognize that you think. What does it mean to be a good person? If you think about it, you'll probably recognize that what you think a good person is is you. Now you well, or at least looks a lot like you. Yeah, look, yeah I mean, looks a lot like who you want to be, at least. Yeah, I mean, we we obviously look at ourselves and we think we're bad people, we're bad people, but we understand, we know what is right and wrong, right? We got that in Genesis three. God tried to keep us from it, but we got a hold of it anyway. <laughs> um, and now we know, we know what's right. I mean, the people I support are the good guys. And the people I don't like are all the bad guys. And, the you know, I may not be perfect, but I know the standards and I understand the standards. And, you know, I I mess up every once in a while. My sins are sort of small. They're not that big of a deal. Uh, so basically, Euthyphro is kind of reflecting uh, the way we often think. He's just more honest. And so um, now what precisely is Euthyphro doing? Well, he's taking his father to court and he has... Uh, and this brings us up to one of the most important elements of the Euthyphro that everyone just seems to, most people just kind of skip over. Euthyphro says, what I'm doing right now is piety, and I can give you proof. Zeus, who's the most, the best and most just of the gods, by the way, if you're following, if you want to follow along in Euthyphro, this is uh, uh, 5E uh, and 6A is where I'm reading. We'll put it in the, the show notes. He goes, I can cite powerful evidence that the law is so. I've already said to others that such actions are right, not to favor the ungodly, whoever they are. These people themselves believe that Zeus is the best and most just of the gods, yet they agree that he bound his father because he unjustly swallowed his sons and that he in turn castrated his father for similar reasons. But they're angry with me because I'm prosecuting my father for this, for his wrongdoing. But they contradict themselves on what they say about the gods and about me. So Euthyphro has just referenced the gods. He's used what we might say metaphysics as a guide to morals. Sounds like a little bit of Iris Murdoch there. But he's used, he's talked about the nature of the gods, shown how their their justice reflects his perfectly. Zeus attacked his father, and in turn, his father, who is Kronos, attacked his father, heaven, or Uranus. I'll be careful I say that word. From where we get our planet name. And so uh, Uranos in uh, in Greek. And so Zeus attacked his father Kronos for swallowing his, particularly his brothers, and trying to swallow Zeus. Um, and uh, that's Poseidon and Hades, right? And then uh, Zeus or Kronos had attacked his father because heaven had mistreated some of uh, some of uh, Kronos's. I guess you could call them sort of brothers. This, I think they were the Cyclops. Um, so I don't remember all the details. But it's okay to attack your father when he's done something wrong. The gods do it. And Socrates responds, and this is maybe the, uh, this is a tremendously important element of, of the Euthyphro. Socrates responds and says, uh, indeed, Euthyphro, this is the reason why I'm a defendant in the case, because I find it hard to accept things like that being said about the gods. I can't believe the gods are that way. 
is what Socrates says. And this is why I'm being accused of being impious because the gods don't, why are they that way? I don't, I don't think they're that way. And he says, do you really believe these things? And Socrates, and Euthyphro's like, yes, they're true. And I can tell you a whole bunch of more surprising things that most people don't even know about. Um, and Socrates goes on, do you really believe there's war among the gods, terrible en enmities and battles and other such things that are told by the poets and so on and so forth. And Euthyphro says, yes, yes, yes. In fact, I have a bunch more stories I want to tell you about Socrates. And Socrates is like, I don't care about those. Let's, let's go on. Because this has <laughs> already set the stage for how, for how the gods are viewed. So what is the, what is, think about the, the way the gods are being described here. Um, what kind of gods are they? Well, the fundamental difference between a human and a god then is what? I should maybe I should put it that way. Power. Power. That's it. That's the only difference. Gods are more powerful. Uh, they might be a little more ethical in some elements, but they war, they kill, they eat their sons, <laughs> they attack their fathers. They don't really sound much better than us. Right. And, and I mean, you know, there's stories about Zeus not being so upright and just, but his power being what made us made, you know, the, the Greeks say that he was just was because he was the strongest. I mean, we've we've talked about this in other recent episodes about the idea that justice equals, you know, kind of what you get away with when you have power. Um, yeah, that's Thrasymachus's view of justice in book one of the Republic. Thrasymachus argues that justice is the advantage or the benefit of the stronger. This essentially comes out to be Euthyphro's view. Now, it's not entirely clear yet, right? The implications haven't been drawn. We're already sort of doing that, but Socrates works to draw these implications out in the Euthyphro, and it ultimately leads to the Euthyphro dilemma, which is still used as an argument against the idea of ethics arising out or coming from God. It's still used. You can still fight in con contemporary philosophy of religion books as a criticism of the idea that ethics come from God, even the Christian God. The Euthyphro dilemma is still employed, but it's employed badly because Plato already gives us a solution to the Euthyphro dilemma. Most people skip over it because we already just dealt, we just dealt with it. Socrates gave us the solution sort of in what he didn't say. Because the Euthyphro dilemma arises out of the idea that gods can determine ethics because they're more powerful than us. Now, power in a very specific way. And here I sort of want to, I want to just stop here for a minute. I think you're about to say something, Joel. But I want to stop here for a minute and have us reflect on the Christian view of God and how ethics relate to God. Why is why do we call God good? Why do his commands stand as what is right, determine what is right and wrong? The typical answers tend to be based in, well, God's the creator. And so he sets the rules or, um, you know, that God is, is power. I, I mean, in some ways you hear people say, well, God is the one who has the power to send me to hell. And so I'm going to do what he tells me to do. Or God has a power, God has made it so I get to go to heaven, so I'm going to do what he says to do. Um, and I think there are better answers than those, and I think we'll talk about them as we, we go on. But I, I, I think it's worth recognizing that 
or at least at this point, that there's there's plenty in modern Christianity that 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 lines up with the the same view of the gods that that seems to be employed by Euthyphro in this dilemma or in this yeah. in this dialogue. Yeah, I think and this is speaking from personal experience. But I think my general feeling so so the question here isn't really whether God is good versus powerful. The question is really what is more fundamental to God's nature, power or goodness? Because the idea is we sort of have this idea of God and God gets to determine what is right and wrong because God created all things. So they are, so everything belongs to God. All right. That makes sense. So, uh, take now, now because of that, God can determine how to treat things and God, I know I'm going to get in step on some toes here. Therefore God can treat things however he wants. And this sounds a little bit like what's going on in some of what, what Paul says in Romans, but you can't extrapolate that out. If let's say I'm Euthyphro, and I'm saying, look, I've got evidence that that what I am, I've got, I'm looking at what God does, and look, He can do what He wants with His pots that He makes. He can treat them however He wants. And so, the more I am capable of making something, the more I can treat it however I want. So, the more something is at my mercy because I'm its creator, the more I can treat it however I feel like. And so let's say I'm, I'm well, let, let's, let's say that I'm able, I'm able to create a human being. I create a, I take my own DNA, I make some modifications because I'm super smart and I grow a baby in a, in a test tube. That's part me and part whatever I fiddle around with. Um, and suddenly I have, a, I have a new human being. And I'm, I made that human being myself. I even, I even built the entire lab myself from raw. Now I haven't completely created that person, but I'm almost as close to a godlike creator as you, as a human being can get in that circumstance. And therefore I can abuse them. I can torture them. I can kill them because they're mine. That's me appealing to the way God relates to the world to talk about how I relate to how I relate to those around me. And that doesn't, you'd say, well, no, that's a mis, that's a misunderstanding. That's a misunderstanding. How? How have I misunderstood anything there? Well, and, and if we want to go one step farther, and you might accuse me of this going too far and to, to a point of parody, but there's, you know, the cartoon strip Calvin and Hobbes, uh, they were one one thing that they would often play is a game called Calvin Ball, where Calvin would make the rules up as he went, but be, as the creator of the game, that was kind of his prerogative because he had the power to make the rules. Um, now we might say, hold on, that's that's not the case at all. But I, when we say that someone has power as the creator we're and therefore they can, they get to set the rules. There's an element in which it look, it can look like Calvin ball unless there's more going on. Yeah. And you could even, you could even think of, so imagine your kid creates a video game 
And it's a little bit like Grand Theft Auto or something like that, right? You're, you're, you have a, let's say a 15 year old son and he's just brilliant. He codes out a game, writes it out and he makes the game such, I mean, it's totally his creation and there's no, there's not even actual real people in it. It's just a game. And he goes through and he's chopping people up and murdering them. He's raping women. He's doing all, and you're like, would you be like, eh, well you made it. So that's fine. I would be like, I would take the thing and destroy it. And I would ground him from Ex- ac- access to screens for a, a decade <laughs> until he got his soul right because something's f- fundamentally flawed about that boy right that's that would be my experience like there's you, you're not justified by virtue of being the creator or the power at least not in any other circumstance and so I think we have this idea that there's a certain threshold of power that once you get past that which only God can get past that, then by virtue of your power, your word is law. And this is, the problem with this is not that it's fundamentally, the problem is that it's not, I don't think it's really completely wrong. There's a nuanced element here that's off. And I think it has to do with our understanding of power. That's where I think the problem lies. Um, I think we just have a fundamentally flawed view of what power is, of what real power is, and that this this flawed view of power is a sophistic understanding of power. Or you might say it's how everyone in the world sees power. <laughs> We're all wrong. Well, I mean, if we go back to our you know introduction to the sophists, you know, the sophists are about argumentation. They're about, you know, supposed to help you, you know, whatever you do, do it better kind of thing. And, um, you know, it, it, it's not that it's a specialization, anything in particular, but it's, it's about being better about power, about argument. Like it, it's this nebulous sense of, um, of using abstract things that are supposed to connect to the concrete, but aren't always clear how they do, which it would make sense then that their view of power would be like, you know, well, as long as you have power, that, that makes you better or stronger or, or whatever. Like it's, it's the sense that power makes the man and however you get that power is okay. Because once you have enough power, you get to set the rules. Yeah, there, I think their idea. So, so in Greek, there's an idea of virtue, and virtue simply means simply means something like excellence. Well, what's the mark of excellence? Well, the mark of excellence is well, y- you win, right? So, what makes a person excellent? Well, they they win all the stuff that they do, and what's the sign? What makes you win? Power. Power makes you win. So um, the sign of being virtuous is that you have power. And you, you see this through scripture too, right? In first century Judaism, there's, you know, there's a sense that if, if you're, if you're, at least we, we saw, we claim to see this there. If you're successful financially and you're healthy and so on and so forth, that's a sign that you have God's blessing. And when the tower falls on people, the question is, well, what did they sin? What sin did they commit? When they see the, the man born blind, was it, was it his sin or his parents' sin? That caused him to be born blind because lack of success is a sign of a lack of virtue. And therefore success is attached to power 
power is is uh, commended. Obviously, when God has power, he gives you power when you do things that please him. And so Euthyphro claims to be acting in ways that are pleasing to the gods. Uh, the religious leaders will claim to be acting in ways that were pleasing to the gods. But then Jesus shows up and says, Jesus, Socrates shows up with Socrates with Euthyphro and annoys him. Jesus shows up to the religious leaders. And I don't know if you know this, but he, he made them mad. Um, <laughs> they didn't much like him. And Jesus and Socrates end up in sort of the same boat, except Jesus rose from the dead and is the son of God. And so, um, but they end up in terms of their relation to the people around them, relation to those who have power. They both get on the wrong side of that. And, and, it, and neither one of them really looks like they have much in the way of power. I mean, you know, G, we're, we're told in the Gospels that, you know, Jesus, you know, says, you know, the son of man has no place to lay his head. Um, you know, that that's not a sign of success. Um, even in first century Judaism, you know, that's not a sign of success to have, have no place to lay your head. Um, you know, it's not like the, they were, um, you know, these crazy rich people or, or, you know, that they had a lot of political sway. Like, you know, that, that was part of what was so jarring about, you know, Palm Sunday was, you know, that was in some ways looked different than most of the rest of Jesus's ministry. Yeah. People came to him, but it's like he he tried to get people to leave. Um, if you look in in John six, you know it's like oh they're like oh that's a hard teaching. We're gonna leave and accept the apostles. And um, yeah, he was but, he was not Jesus was not a good evangelist. <laughs> he did he he could have learned. I could have taught him a few things about how he, to leave he, people he, to himself. He, he needed a new PR department. Yeah, that's exactly right. One of the things that that I want to look at. And I think we're going to look at in the next episode, because we're going to kind of bring bring this one to an end. We're going to try to keep these a little bit shorter. Um, but so we, we've talked about this issue of, of the relationship of power to what is good. Well, what precisely did the Jews of the first century misunderstand that Jesus was presenting? And what precisely did Euthyphro misunderstand that Socrates is trying to present? And how does that lead to the Euthyphro dilemma? Um, so the, this, we're going to slowly kind of, kind of work through this because, uh, I'm, this sounds like this is a long setup. The answer to this problem is very simple, but it's really hard to understand the full meaning of it until you really understand the problem. And so I really want to, I really trying to work up this problem. If you believe that God establishes what is right and wrong, because God has the biggest guns in the universe and outside the universe, then you are in line with Euthyphro. Thrasymachus, the other sophists, and the religious leaders who killed Jesus. Now, it seems a little bit harsh. Ouch. It seems a little bit harsh, but I'm also talking to myself. And I didn't learn this from Plato. I saw this in particularly Luke Acts when I was teaching a New Testament course and researching it. And I was like, oh, oh, whoa, okay, I, I got something off here. And then I started recognizing that this is what this is also what is what Plato is trying to present, particularly in his com confrontation with the Sophists. So I think next I want to I want to pause on Euthyphro, and I want to get into I, I want to get into Luke Acts a little bit in particular, but really it's all throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, and then come back to Euthyphro. So I think we're going to wrap this one up quick. 
and then jump into the next one. So thanks for listening. Sorry if you're offended. This is Travis. <laughs> this is Joel, and have a great day.